mention, I just want to share with you guys, there's a new documentary out there called The American Gospel. Most of you may not have heard of this, and you can find it on YouTube. It's called The American Gospel, Christ Alone. And right now it's available for rent or purchase, and I rented it and I've watched it two nights in a row. It's about two and a half hours long, and it is incredible. And I have been so deeply impacted by it afresh, and it's a look at the, the true gospel of Jesus Christ and how it's been distorted and perverted especially here in America, and then exported all around the world. And it does a beautiful job of articulating what the true gospel is and helping us to see just how badly distorted it has been and in so many different ways. We see it all the time and don't even necessarily recognize it. So I want to encourage you, if you would like to, to watch that, you should. But we're going to probably show it here at the church sometime in the near future, do a movie night. And so there will be more details to come about that. Okay, it's Mother's Day. So this is the important part right here. Got all that out of the way. We want to honor and bless the mothers here. Um, it's such a thankless job so often, uh, but we, we love the mothers, we value them, and we want to honor you today. And I, I was thinking about this, and there's a verse in Isaiah 66:13 where God says, "As a mother comforts, so will I comfort you." And I think most of us know what that's about when we, we consider the comfort that a mother gives. And I'm, I'm seeing it in a very fresh way as I see my wife and how she comforts our daughters. And I think God actually likens Himself to a mother in the way that she comforts her children. And that, that really tells you something about how special that bond is between a mother and her children and what a role they play. And mothers are so much more than that. And so mothers, we just want to say we we see you, we thank you, we honor you, and I want to pray for you. May I do that? Please. Father God, thank you for the, the faithful mothers in this room. Thank you for the blessing that they are to our church. Thank you for the, the blessing that they are in their homes. And Lord, everywhere that you've planted them, wherever their sphere of influence is in the community, God, you use them. And I understand it's a very exhausting job at times and physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually demanding and so oftentimes um, overlooked. And so we thank you, God, for the faithfulness of the moms in this room. And I'm grateful that we do have a time where we would just stop and give them the, the um, honor that they deserve, God. You honor mothers. And I pray a special blessing on them, Lord. Would you meet them here today? Would you encourage them afresh, God? Would you bless them? Would you draw closer to them than ever before? Would you do a brand new work in their hearts and in their lives and in their families? And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 21. We're going to be looking at the first 14 verses today. I'm going to slow it down just a little bit, at least for the next couple of weeks. We're in a portion of the book where it gets rather choppy, and the, the chapters just don't break very well. And so, because we're going to do a little bit less, I'd like to um, just read... The, the whole portion together and then pray and then we'll go back and start digging in. So Acts chapter 21 verses 1 through 14. Now it came to pass 
that when we had departed from them and set sail running a straight course, we came to Kos, the following day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload her cargo. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. And when we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way. And they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city. And we knelt down on the shore and prayed. And when we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship and they returned home. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemaeus, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. On the next day, we, who were Paul's companions, departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. As we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound it, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, The will of the Lord be done. Let's pray. Father, we love You and we love Your Word. I thank You for this text of Scripture that is before us today. I pray, Father, that You would open Your Word to us and that You would open our hearts, God, and our minds to receive Your Word. I pray that You would meet with us in a very special and a very real and a very fresh way, Father, because we all need You. We want to behold Your face. We want to behold Your glory. We want to see You and Your Word and we want to hear Your voice. And we have come together corporately as Your church to worship You in song and in seeking You in Your Word. So I pray that You would receive glory. And I pray, Father, that You would move mightily in this room by Your Holy Spirit. And I pray that You would encourage the hearts of all of the, the various needs represented in this, this room today. And so I thank You in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen and amen. Okay, so Paul is wrapping up his third missionary journey, and he's making his way to Jerusalem at this point. He's there towards the end, and it's very clear to Paul that this was his. Uh, this was what the Lord would have him to do. Now, Paul was a a man who suffered greatly. That was that was his ministry. It was marked by suffering, and he knew that. and And the Lord made that clear to him from the very beginning when He saved him and commissioned him. And He also knew everywhere that He went that trials, that tribulations awaited him. That was no surprise to him, nor to us at this point. We see it happen so frequently, right? But Paul's conviction, Paul's conviction, 
was that he was to preach the gospel and he was to go wherever the Lord would have him to go and whatever door that the Lord opened to him, he was going to go no matter what, even if it cost his life. So I just want to talk about this, the word conviction. What, what do I mean when I say that? Because it's a word that we're going to be talking about quite a bit in this text. Because I titled the, the sermon, Steadied by Conviction. Conviction sometimes is the thing that we hold on to. It's, it's something that we believe so deeply down in our core that we are absolutely gripped by it. We are absolutely driven by it. It is the reason that we do what we do. I am convinced that God is real. He is alive. He is the truth. That the Scriptures are truth. That Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That He is the Son of God sent by the Father to die for the sins of the world. And that if I put my trust in Him, I will be saved from the wrath of God, saved from my sins, saved from death and eternal punishment in hell. That is a, a conviction that runs deep within me. I believe that to be absolute truth. Okay? And sometimes we use the word convicted. And that is to say, God really spoke to me or, or maybe I did something that went against uh, convictions that I hold and, and I feel it. It doesn't feel good. It's like a check. A check in my heart. And I'm like, man, wow, why did, I, why did I do that? Why did I say that? Because that's not pleasing to the Lord. That goes against God's Word. And you feel that. I would say it's, it's kind of a, a, almost a feeling of guilt. You guys tracking with me? You know what I'm talking about? It's, there is no guilt. There is no condemnation in Christ. Right? But it's, uh, that's, that's to be convicted. God speaks to us sometimes. He puts His finger on things. And, and He's working on us. And that, that is to come under conviction, to be convicted. So we have convictions, things that we hold to be very true. We're driven by them. And at times we are convicted uh, when, when we act in a way that is uh, not according to the convictions that we hold. Okay, So just want to make our, our definitions of these words very clear here. So as I said, Paul had deep convictions. We're going to see that in this chapter. Because of that, Paul had real commitment. Paul was absolutely committed. And what we also see in this text here is that there are people who will try to stop Paul from carrying out his convictions, from carrying out his, his mission. And they, they do it with the best of intentions. They love Paul. They're worried about Paul. They don't want anything bad to happen to Paul. But Paul is marching right into danger and they're trying to stop that from happening. And so we can learn a lesson from those people too. We can learn today about conviction. We can learn about commitment. And we can also learn about being considerate of other people. Okay? And so that's what we're going to be, in a nutshell, looking at today in this text. So, verse 1. Now it came to pass that when we had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Kos the following day to Rhodes and from there to Patara and finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre for there the ship was to unload her cargo. Okay, so now Luke is speaking from the, the vantage point. He's there with them. We have set sail. We know that for a time Luke was writing not as a first-hand eyewitness, but now he is actually with the group. He is there as a, as a first-hand eyewitness to everything that's happening, and you can see how the language changes. 
And he's referring to when they departed from Miletus. Last week we talked about uh, Paul's last words to the elders there, uh, the Ephesian elders. They met him in Miletus and they closed the whole thing off by weeping and praying together. It was a, a beautiful picture. So we're picking up there. He said, we departed from there. And literally the word departed, it is to say torn away. They had to tear themselves away from these, these brother pastors, these elders. The bond was, was so deep, it was so beautiful, it was so real um, that it was to say as though they had to tear themselves away by force just to leave their presence. And I, that's, a, that's a, a great picture of the Christian bond, the, the family bond. It, it hurts when we part ways with our brothers and sisters. And the Lord does move people on and we know this very well and so I, I see this and I, I know exactly what Paul's talking about I understand very well well as I said Paul is winding down his third journey and he's making his way to Jerusalem for the feast of Pentecost and so they go from Miletus to Kos so that's about a 35 to 40 mile trip um, and then they go from Kos to Rhodes again it's, it's pretty similar about 20-25 miles from Rhodes to Patara the same and now from Patara all the way to Tyre, it's going to be about a 400-mile journey. And so now they really sail off into the deep sea there. He mentions Cyprus. They see it from a distance, but they bypass it. And then verse 4, they have now landed in Tyre. And he says, "...and finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. And they told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. And when he had come to the end of those days... We departed and went on our way, and they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city, and we knelt down on the shore and prayed. And when we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship, and they returned home. So Paul is now at Tyre, and he found some believers here. And that's pretty cool because Paul didn't plant this church. Most likely, these, the believers here are here because of the persecution that Saul, Paul, oversaw earlier in the book of Acts when, when persecution broke out and Saul the maniac was on the loose, Christians went everywhere. They dispersed. They spread abroad. And they believe that many of the Christians here at this place at this time are there as a result of the persecution of Saul. And now here he is as Paul. And the, the Christians greet him. He finds them. And then verse 4. And this is where it gets a little confusing. Because it sounds like it's saying that the Holy Spirit told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Because it says that they told him by the Spirit not to go. And what most likely is happening here is that these believers, someone prophesies to Paul that suffering awaits him in Jerusalem. And because of that, they, as, as uh, friends, um, encourage him, please don't go. Because they're worried about Paul. You'll notice in your notes there, there's a quote from Alexander McLaren. And he says the same thing. He says, We have to bring common sense to bear on the interpretation of the words in verse 4 and must suppose that what came from the Spirit was the prediction of persecutions waiting Paul and the exhortation to avoid these um, by keeping clear of Jerusalem was the voice of human affection only. Such a blending of clear insight and of mistaken deductions from it is no strange experience. And so they heard rightly from the Lord when they said that persecutions awaited Paul, but it was still God's will for Paul to go right into it. But they didn't get that. And they were pleading with Paul, don't do that, don't go. 
It's interesting, I've had a similar experience. I had someone tell me something one time and I mean it came to pass and there it was it was amazing. It was clearly a word from the Lord, but the exhortation they attached to it was totally not right. And so uh, I, it's, it's interesting to see that. I've, I've had somewhat of a similar experience there. Well, Paul knew God's will and he was determined to do it. And that's what I want to point out here. Paul, Paul was, he had convictions. You know what drove Paul? It was the gospel. Paul said in Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for the Jews first and then to the Greeks. Paul was absolutely gripped by the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was a man who knew everything about the law, keeping the law, the burden, the back-breaking burden of the law, and he was saved from that. Paul was saved from being a rule keeper. Many of us in here, we've been saved from debauchery, we've been saved from sin taint and corruption and all of that, but Paul was actually saved from being a good person being a rule keeper. He understood you couldn't keep enough rules to, to be on par with the holiness and the righteousness of God. You could not do it. And so Paul loved the gospel. He loved the good news. And the good news is simply believing on the, the, the Son of God, believing that He is who He said He is and that He died upon the cross. He lived a perfect life that we couldn't live. He died the death that we deserved in our place, so that if we believe in Him, we would have salvation. You don't do the Gospel, you don't live the Gospel, you believe the Gospel. You trust the Gospel. And Paul was so gripped by this, he was driven by it. And so everything that he did was out of a love for God and a love for the Gospel. And that's how it ought to be for us. We do what we do because we know how good God is and how good He has been to us. And because we have put our faith and trust in Him, we are born again, we are saved. Amen. And now our greatest desire, our greatest conviction is to love the Lord and to serve Him, to honor Him, to worship Him. And that was Paul. So that was his conviction. He believed God, the Gospel, and he was a Gospel preacher and he was going to do that wherever God led him, even if it was his, meant his life. And so... One, one point I would make here is that these people were very well-meaning, but they were, they were wrong. And Paul knew what he was supposed to do, and he did it, period, regardless of what, others may have, what other kind of influences may have come his way. Reminds me of a story in, in the Old Testament. I'm going to throw a couple of these at you. A really uh, strange story, but there was a guy that was sent to prophesy against Israel. He was a prophet and he was sent from Judea up north into Israel. And God told him, when you go and you prophesy against the king, don't, don't stay. Don't, don't eat. Don't drink water. Don't do anything. Come back. So he did. He went up and prophesied. And oddly enough, the king actually invited him to dine with him. He said, no, I cannot. He received his instructions from God and he obeyed the, the father in that and he came back. Well, on his way back down, another prophet was aware that this prophet was here and he said, uh, hey, he, he found the young prophet and said, come back to my house. And the guy says, I can't. God gave me specific instructions not to stay, not to eat or drink or anything. And then the prophet said, the older prophet said, hey, well, I'm a prophet too. And God told me, that you should come to my house and you should eat and drink and stay. And so he did. And then while he's sitting there eating with the guy, the older prophet starts to prophesy and prophesies doom against him because he didn't do what God told him to do. That's a really crazy story. 
But there's a big lesson to be learned here. When we know the truth, when we know what God has told us to do, we do it no matter what. And we may have all kinds of influences, well-meaning or not, but we have to be very careful to hear from the Lord and to do His will. Right? And so that was the case with Paul. You know, we have to be very careful of what I call the four most dangerous words in Christianity. And that might be an overstatement. I don't know. But it's the Lord told me. The Lord told me. And I want to be real careful about this. And this is something that we all do, right? We all, as Christians, we hear from the Lord, or, or so we think at times. And sometimes well-meaning Christians will come to us and say, you know, the Lord told me this. And they'll tell us. And it's like, funny, the Lord didn't tell me that. You know, and... Uh, Sometimes people really, really go, go crazy with the Lord told me stuff. And we, we have to reel that in. We have to be very careful because this, this is the perfect, inspired, infallible, inerrant, authoritative Word of God. This is what we, we put our trust in. This is the anchor. Because all kinds of people will have all kinds of thoughts and feelings and different things they'll tell you. This is the thing that doesn't change. This is the standard that we hold to, right? And so sometimes the Lord may speak to your heart not audibly, but you'll have this inclination that God is trying to tell you something or encourage you. Someone may come to you who has got a word from the Lord for you, and it has to line up with the Scriptures. Right? That's very important. And I can just give you a little example of this. This is a silly illustration, and I've told it before, but when I was a brand new believer, uh, and I was working at a wood shop in South Carolina, I mean, guys, it is, during the summertime, it is like so hot there, it's like suffocating hot. And I was in this wood shop, and I go into the break room, and there was a guy filling up his water bottle at the water fountain. And when you do that, all the cold water runs out. And so my first thought was, dang, he's getting the cold water. And then immediately I thought to myself, why, do I, why should I have the cold water? Why, why do I deserve that? Because the Bible says that I ought to esteem other people's needs above my own. And so I, I was convicted I'll use that word. In that moment, I was convicted that that was my first thought, was me. I'm not going to get. And then that lined up with Philippians chapter 2 when it says that you ought to esteem other people's needs above your own. I believe that, that the Holy Spirit convicted me in that moment and I learned something very fresh and real as a brand new believer. That's a, a lofty realization to come to. Wow, you know, that's, that's my first impulse, inclination. And so that would be an example of how I believe the Lord speaks to us, convicts us, and it lines up with His Word. Does that make sense? And so we have to be careful when people come to us and tell us the Lord said, and we have to be very careful when we use that kind of language, because we do use it rather loosely oftentimes. And um, people will come and say, you know, the Lord is telling me I need to divorce my, my spouse because I just don't love them anymore. And people do that, do say those kinds of things. Now, how am I supposed to com combat that? Well, I'll tell you, it doesn't line up with this, right? And so that, that's how that works. So Paul sets a good example for us in that he's steadfast. As well-meaning as these people may be, what they're saying is not right. Paul knew it, and he stayed the course. So he stayed seven days entire. He departed from there. They accompanied him to the edge of town. And then they all kneeled down on the beach there together, and they prayed. And that's a beautiful picture for us, I love that, and I I got to think about how often do we do that? You know, the the Christians there in the early church, as they were coming and going, parting from each other, they would literally get down on their knees in a group and pray together, right? 
And I thought, that's, that's a beautiful picture of me. I, I thought, I'm going to start doing that, I think. I'm going to try. I don't want to freak anybody out. But, you know, I'm just, why don't we just get down on our knees and pray to the Lord together? It's a beautiful picture. All right, well, moving on here. Verse 7. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemaeus, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. On the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed, came to Caesarea, and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. Okay, so setting sail from Tyre, they now came to Ptolemaeus, and we're told that they stayed at the house of Philip. Once again, there are believers here. And uh, they're in Caesarea. Now Philip, that should be uh, familiar to us. He was uh, one of the seven deacons that was given to the church back in Acts chapter 6. And you'll recall that he went out to Samaria and he was preaching the gospel. He's known as Philip the Evangelist. And then he came across this Ethiopian guy in his carriage reading Isaiah and he preached Christ to him. And then uh, the guy got baptized. Well, Philip ultimately went to Caesarea and all these years later, he's still there. Roughly, we're talking about roughly 20 to 25 years later at this point. The book of Acts is about a 30-year stretch. And so where we're at right now, we're about 25 years in, roughly, approximately. And so now, again, the reason that Philip went out to Samaria and preached was because of the persecution under Saul. And so now here, 25 years later, Paul the Apostle comes into his house. And you can only imagine, I don't know what kind of interactions they may or may not have had in between that time, but it's a crazy thought to think that the, the very thing that drove Philip out, uh, now the guy is in his house standing before him as the Apostle Paul. And we're told that he had four daughters, four young daughters who prophesied. The early church regarded these women as important sources of information in the early years of the church. That's a quote there by MacArthur. Uh, So these young ladies, they had been around. They saw very interesting and fascinating things in the beginning. No doubt uh, Philip had, had told them a lot about those early days. I mean, Philip was one of the first deacons of the church. This is amazing. He was sent out as an evangelist and was, was doing incredible wonders by the power of the Lord. And so um, Eusebius was an early church historian and Papias of Hierapolis was a bishop during um, what is called the patristic period for those of you who like history in here. The apostolic fathers, basically the disciples of the apostles during that time. Papias uh, spoke of these young ladies as well, and they, they uh, were really well known in the church, and they were, uh, they, uh, were oftentimes used as information, sources of information regarding many major events that happened during that time. And Luke, that was his whole thing, was he was taking into account all of these different things that happened, compiling them and giving them back to this guy named Theophilus. We're told that in the very beginning of Luke and Acts. So no, no doubt they're, they're here for a couple of years because Paul will be soon incarcerated. And he'll be incarcerated in his uh, Caesarean imprisonment for a couple of years. So I, I don't doubt that Luke got a lot of his information uh, from Philip and, and these uh, daughters of his. Just a side note. Alright, well verse 10. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And when he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, 
and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So we've met Agabus before, and he's already been established as a prophet here. And uh, in Acts 11.28, he came and he prophesied about a great famine that was happening throughout the world at that time. So he was a legitimate New Testament prophet here. And he acts out his prophecy. He takes Paul's belt and he binds himself with it and says, the man who wears this belt, he will be bound by the Jews and delivered to the Gentiles. And that was a common Old Testament practice for the prophets. Man, they did some crazy stuff, you know, and I won't get too deep into that, but there was this one that I always thought was pretty funny. This guy was going to prophesy against the king, and he came as though he were coming out of a battle. So he, he wants to disguise himself. So he comes up to a guy and says, Hey, punch me in the face. And the guy's like, No, I'm not going to punch you in the face. And he was like, okay, for that, because you disobeyed the word of the Lord, you're going to be killed by a lion. So then the guy gets killed by a lion. So then he goes up to another guy and says, hey, punch him in the face. And the guy's like, all right. And he just decks him, you know. I mean, I would too. I guess the lesson there is if someone comes up and says, punch me in the face, you should probably do it. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Don't do that. Um, at any rate, then he puts a bandage on and then he goes and prophesies to this king and he kind of traps this, the king in, in these words and then all of a sudden he you know, reveals who he is. But I just thought, that is really colorful. And that was the way the Old Testament prophets were so often. And so I, I see Agabus do this and I think that's, that's just super consistent with, with the Old Testament in that respect. Pretty, pretty funny. But his message is clear. Paul's going to Jerusalem, you're going to be bound. It doesn't tell us that Agabus was trying to talk him out of it. You're just making it very clear. This is where you're going. This is what's going to happen when you get there. Know that. And so verse uh, 12, this is the response of all of Paul's companions and, and where he's at. It says, Now when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. So it says both we and those. So this is Paul's traveling companions. I think he's got about seven or eight guys with him at this point. Philip and his household, possibly Agabus. We don't know, but I mean, this group here is pleading with Paul, don't do it. And you can imagine the distress that Paul must have been under in this moment. You know, we tend to think that Paul was superhuman because of all the hardship he endured and he stayed the course, but he wasn't. I have no doubt that he was fearful and he had great courage you know, courage doesn't mean the absence of fear. It's just the willingness to do what you know you have to do, the right thing in the presence of fear. And Paul went right into it. But I don't doubt that he struggled with fear and wavering, and this didn't make it any better. People are pleading with him, don't go, don't go. So we've got to be sensitive. Let this be a lesson to us. We have to be sensitive to other people when God is calling them into a difficult situation. I think oftentimes our inclination may be to discourage people or try to stop them when, when God is calling them out upon the waters. And we don't want to be the ones that stumble people. We want to be the ones who encourage. We're the, the wind that is to their back, pushing them forward out into the Lord's, the Lord's will, right? And I've had this experience, and I know very well when we moved out here. You know, I had a number of people. People that I thought would be very happy for me, they weren't. People who, they would project their own fears. You know, that's, that's one of the things we have to watch out for. People who would never step out. People who would never take a risk for the Lord. People who would never, you know, put it on the line like that. They don't want you to either. 
and they'll project that fear on you. And I've had all kinds of people say, "Why? Why would you do this? And this doesn't make sense." And you know, I've mentioned this before. We had one guy come up and tell us that the Lord told him that some terrible thing was going to happen to Jess, and that God wasn't going to bless our trip out here, and and so on and so forth. And but God had made it very clear to me that we were supposed to go out here, and and we knew that. And God had really confirmed it to me by His Word. You know, just it's another example. I was uh, sitting in a coffee shop, really panicking a little bit about coming out here. And I was reading Mark 5 where Jesus heals the demoniac, and the demoniac wants to go with Jesus. He's a healed man now. He wants to go with the Lord. And Jesus said, go back to your hometown and tell them all the marvelous things God has done for you, how God has been so good to you. And in that moment, I had this overwhelming sense that that was a word for my wife. And that we were supposed to come back here and God was going to use her too in very amazing ways in, in Napa. And uh, I didn't know for sure that that was from God, but it was straight out of the Word. And I just had this really strong sense. And now I see the fruit of it. I see what God has done in her since we've been back here and, and through her. And so I, I knew what God was calling us to do, but we had well-intentioned people trying to stop us for all kinds of reasons. And so... Uh, we have to be careful. We don't want to be that person. There is a time to speak sense and to speak reason into someone's life, but we just have to be very careful that, that it's, it's for the right reason and that it's, that it's appropriate. You know, we can fail to encourage people when they need it the most. You remember when Jesus told them that He was going to go, what was going to happen to Him, and you remember what Peter's response was to that? He said, far be it from you, Lord. No, you will not do that. It's not going to happen to you. And do you remember what Jesus' response to Peter was? Get behind me, Satan. You're not mindful of the things of God, but of men. You're not thinking about God's plan and God's will and God's mission. And you're trying to distract me from what God would have me to do. And so it's amazing because Peter had just had this awesome revelation from God that Jesus was the Christ. And Jesus tells him, you know what? Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, Peter. God did. So this is this awesome mountaintop moment. And then the next thing he does is he goes and says, you know, no way, Lord, you're not going to do that. And then Jesus says, you know what? Get behind me, Satan. That's, you know, it's pretty amazing how that, that can happen. But we have to be ever careful of, of that. That we aren't those people who who discourage or, or stumble people from stepping out and doing what the Lord would have us to do. So Paul, he stays the course. Verse 13. Then Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So that was Paul's conviction. He was driven. And he was ready to die even if that's what it cost him for the name of the Lord Jesus, for the sake of the gospel. And so breaking my heart here, obviously we tend to hear that and think, you know, this was a very painful thing, a very hurtful thing for Paul. But again, Alexander McLaren there, he says, breaking my heart really means to melt away my resolution. And shows that Paul felt that the passionate grief of his brethren was beginning to do what no fear for himself could do shake even his steadfast purpose. Paul had been beaten, starved, shipwrecked, rejected. I mean, everything that you can think of, Paul had endured it and nothing could stop him. And now the one thing that was melting down his resolution was the passionate, 
cries of his loved ones. There's a lot of power in that, guys. We have the power to encourage people and stir them up onto good works. And we have the power to discourage people and frustrate people and, and sow fear into people. And Paul said, what are you doing? I know what I'm supposed to do. God has called me to this. Don't try to dissuade me or dissolve my resolution. What are you doing? And so Paul was dead set on this. No matter the cost, he was ready to die. I'll give you an extreme example from history. Polycarp. He was an early church father. He was actually a disciple of John the Baptist. And he was the pastor of the church of Smyrna. And he was taken and he was persecuted and they were going to burn him alive. And he was an old man at this point. And he was well liked. And even the people that were going to kill him didn't want to kill him. And they said, look, don't do this. We don't want to do this. Just, just recant. Turn away. Deny the Lord. And we won't have to... They were going to burn him alive. And they did burn him alive. And his response to that was, and I can't remember the exact year. It was something like 80-something years. 87. We'll just say that. He said, 87 years the Lord has been faithful to me. How could I, you know, he, he hasn't let me down once. How can I then blaspheme my Lord, one that's been so faithful to me for all of these years? And he chose death. That's an extreme example. But that was someone who knew he was gripped, he was compelled by the love of Jesus and the gospel, and he wasn't going to reject that. He wasn't going to dishonor his Lord. He wasn't going to blaspheme the name of Jesus. And he was burned alive because of it. Now, that's an extreme example and one that most of us know nothing about and never will. Um, most of us are dealing with simple obedient, obedience issues, right? I mean, we, we all have things. God has told us very clearly what we are to do, and we struggle with doing the simple things, right? In this flesh that we're in, in this world that we live in, it is not easy. And that, that in and of itself is the battle so often. But there are people in this room right now who are dealing with catastrophic issues. And you've got some serious decisions to make. And so God will lead you. God will tell you. Perhaps God has told you. And you have to do what the Lord has told you to do. We have to do whatever we're told to do no matter the outside influence. You know, as a pastor, I have the job, I have to risk being offensive uh, for love's sake because I have to speak the whole truth according to God's Word. And sometimes people do not like that. It's a very offensive thing. But I have to do what I have to do and I have to say what I have to say no matter what, no matter the outside influence. You know, and we all are in this situation to one degree or another. Some of us have employers that hate God, that hate Christianity, and we feel the weight of that. We feel that pressing in on us. Some of us uh, have college professors who hate Christianity, and you feel the weight of that. I, I, have a, I know of a, a dear sister that recently was humiliated in class because of her Christian beliefs. The professor went off on, on her in front of everybody, and, uh, and we have that. And, you know, our, friends, our friends might try to lead us in a certain way, but we know what we have to do. They may put peer pressure on you to do something or to go somewhere or to engage in something that is against the Lord, but you know what you've got to do. You know the will of the Lord. And you have to stand for that even if it costs you your friends. You know, marriage, so often I, I hear about this, um, it, and it seems more times than not to be the, the husband that is not walking with the Lord, and it's upon the, the, the wife and the mother to to walk in righteousness. 
not always that way, but it seems more times than not it's been my experience. And it's not easy. It's not easy to walk with the Lord and to do the right thing and to stand for righteousness when the spouse is making it so hard on you. But you know what you've got to do. You're compelled by it. You're gripped by it. The Gospel, your love for the name of the Lord, you're going to walk in righteousness no matter what. You know the government is becoming increasingly harder on Christians and, and imposing laws and things forcing the hand of Christian organizations. You know, there's uh, the dating sites, eHarmony, stuff like that. Uh, well, there was no option for, for gay dating, and so they, there was a lawsuit that came forward, so every dating site had to do that, including the Christian dating sites. So the Christian dating sites had to facilitate uh, gay relationships, and they did. They did, and so they, they gave to, to that. So they're facilitating and um, really um, encouraging uh, that which so deeply grieves the heart of God because the government said you have to or we're going to shut you down. Well, we have to do the right thing, guys, no matter the inside influence. Sometimes we can be our biggest deterrent. We can be our biggest distraction. If you're fearful, if you're scared about something, that God has called you to do it, you have to do it anyways. You have to step out in faith. If you're angry, guess what? You still have to forgive. You still have to forgive. There's no option. Jesus said you have to forgive 70 times 7 if, if your brother sins against you, if someone sins against you. When all seems lost and all hope is gone, you still have to have faith that the Lord is good and that the Lord has a plan and that He's going to take care of you. We have to lean upon what we know to be the truth no matter the outside or the inside influences. Paul knew what God called him to do and he was going to do it no matter what, even if it cost his life. And nothing could stop him. Not the violence from the enemies and not the desperate pleas of those closest to him. So verse 14, So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, The will of the Lord be done. So they understood. They got it. Paul was not going to be deterred. They couldn't stop him. And in effect, they said, look, right or wrong, the Lord's will be done. And that's the key, guys. That's it. Recognizing that God is sovereign, that He is in control, and we have to do what we have to do no matter what. We have to be faithful. We have to be obedient. And we have to trust that the Lord is in control. The Lord's will will be done. And He's going to be glorified when we do what He has called us to do. You know, I think about the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and uh, Daniel. They weren't going to bow to the king. They weren't going to bow to that statue. And he was gonna be, they were going to be thrown in the fiery furnace by Nebuchadnezzar. And that guy would make good on that. And they said, you know what? The Lord is going to come through for us. But even if He doesn't save us, we will not bow to you. And they trusted the will of the Lord, whether He saved them or not. So just recognizing we're not in control. We're not in control. We never were. We never will be. You know who's in control? That's right. God's in control. And so we have to commit ourselves to Him. We have to commit ourselves to His will. We have to do it no matter what. And we have to commit others to His will. We have to commit our children to His will. What happens when your kid comes to you and says, I want to go to Bible college in Mexico? What happens if your kid comes to you and says, I want to go be a missionary in Iran? Or whatever the case may be, fill in the blank. And a lot of you in here know what I'm talking about. What are you going to do then? Are you going to say, oh no, don't do that. Don't do that because you're scared or whatever the reason may be. No. 
You trust the Lord, whatever the situation may be, because you're not in control, you never have been, you won't be. We must trust ourselves and our loved ones into the care of He who is able, the one who is really in control. It's His will that we are concerned with. We want to do it no matter what, and it's Him that we trust. Amen? All right, well, we'll close with that. Uh, Would you come up and, and close us in a final song? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we love You and we, we thank You for the, the God-given convictions that You have given us. And I thank You for the commitment that flows out of that. Lord, we are so gripped by the truth of who You are and what You have done. We are moved by the Gospel. We are compelled by love to serve You and to do Your will and to go where You would have us go even if there is danger there. Even if it makes no sense. Lord, we will follow You. And Lord, we want to be those who would encourage others to take faith steps. So Father, help us, God. Help us to honor You and to glorify You and to step out in Your name to be those who would do that and those who would encourage others to do the same. In Jesus' name, Amen.